nobody there It seems I'm all alone again Does anybody care? This planet's empty I see no signs of life Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive There are no people in the future There are no people There are no people in the future No people at all There are no people in the future Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future Let me try my people call Hey everybody, everybody, it is Friday, June 16th, 2023, welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken, and each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show, become a patron for as little as five bucks a month, head over to patreon.com slash rcpress. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. You know, leave a comment. Let other folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. Can't let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. Putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money, you can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on this week's show, we've got a bunch of stuff going on. Uh, a little discombobulated this morning, I must admit. Um... Uh, in addition to kind of just messing up my plan for the, the morning, um, because I'm just whatever, clueless, <laughs> uh, just kind of whatever, um, then uh, ran into a couple little tech issues, but um, I, I had forgotten that there was um, mentioned kind of, well, I'll get into it um, in a minute. But anyways, I'm here, so we got it. So... Uh, you know, big week this week. Donald Trump was officially kind of uh, brought up in court and they had a hearing where he was, you know, pled not guilty to 37 charges. So we'll see what's going on with there. Um, it was a kind of cool, uh, kind of pretty landmark uh, Supreme Court case that came through where um, the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act was upheld by the Supreme Court um, in a 7-2 to ruling. This just came down yesterday. Um, there was some fear that um, that the court was going to strip away the uh, this act. This act basically allows to make sure that um, um, uh, Native American children um, <clears throat> you're keeping Native American children with their families, right? Um, or their tribes um, in foster care and adoption cases if possible. You know, it's a long, very and sorted history there of um, Native children being taken away from their families and placed with white people. But anyways, um, so that's pretty good. Some more Supreme Court cases coming up. Um, we also know that uh, China just announced that uh, fossil fuels now account for less than half of China's power capacity. 
Now, let's be clear, this doesn't mean that they are uh, actually powering their country on uh, less than half fossil, fossil fuels. Uh, it has to do with the overall capacity, but that's still a milestone. Um, that's two years ahead of time that they were planning on. Um, the pretty awesome Elizabeth Fiedler's awesome bill for um, keeping solar in schools um, is being held up by a Republican immigration amendment. Yes, indeed. By the one, the only, uh, Martina White. And then this is kudos to Sean Kitchen for publishing this story um, out there in the Keystone newsroom. Um, this is kind of a key thing. We've talked about the Solar and Schools program, um, the show, um, a bit. It's a freaking amazing program. This is the, exactly the kind of kind of smart, targeted program that, um, you know, Elizabeth Fiedler is becoming to be known by, right? Really, things are going to help people that are going to um, help schools, they're going to help the climate. Um, but, no, oh, Martina White wants to make sure that we got to make it racist, too. So uh, that's causing a pause. Love that. Um, really interesting information or, or, or uh, some research being published now about this AI feedback loop. Um, really fascinating that they're finding out that, uh, you know, wait, basically what happens when AIs, because, you know, AIs depend upon the information that's out there. Well, what happens when more and more of the information that's out there is actually being generated by AIs? It's kind of interesting, right? Uh, Adam Schiff gets censored and there's some kind of $16 million they want him to pay or whatever. Um, it's just whatever. Uh, news to what we've been following this week, of course. Oh, sorry. What we've been calling of uh, this, of course, uh, is the uh, Penridge School Board meeting, um, which took place on Monday, um, which follows up a disastrous previous meeting. Um, and front and center was the Vermilion contract, right? That is the contract to rewrite the social studies curriculum um, from a brand new consultant that's minted from a Christian nationalist college. Um, and they want to bring on the Christian nationalist version of, of social studies um, to Penridge School District. Um, you know, Penridge has the uh, honor, if you will, of being the only client of Vermilion. And the young environmentalist uh, case at, um, out in Montana has kind of officially started trial. And this is going to be on. fantastic, quite interesting. And also great article reporting by Jenny Stevens again in the Bucks County Beacon that goes to um, some right to know documents that came out that shows that the Penridge superintendent tried to push back against some of this uh, vermilion stuff, um, you know, Push back, maybe that's a little bit too strong of a word. We can say at least that raised some objections and then was heartily kind of dismissed and belittled by Megan Bannis Clemmings, um, as you would expect. Um, yeah, a bunch of other stuff too as well. We'll get into some other things, uh, I'm sure, as we go. But as you can tell already, I'm just a little off today, so... So for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern um, on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, or subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Down over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all those platforms. And congratulations goes out to Rick Smith um, for getting in the top 100. What do they call it? The, uh, the heavy 100 or something like this. Um, the top 100 uh, uh, from Talkers Magazine. Um, 
huge deal, right? Uh, you know, Rick has been uh, around. Uh, he has been doing, you know, the good work of uh, labor radio now for got years, and uh, getting this kind of recognition in kind of um, the national sphere is pretty awesome. Right, so congratulations to Rick, and we're also sorry, uh, Rick, that that had to come at a time when you got COVID for the first time. So uh, hopefully that stops kicking your butt and uh, you can uh, start to feel better again. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring their political call behind this podcast, Rock the House, and they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. If you haven't heard, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Mikuleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist current, streaming through Bucks County and beyond. And Cyril invites, those, uh, invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions that we can steer the community towards calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check out the buckscountybeacon.podbean.com for all the episodes or get it wherever you get your podcasts. And for all you gamers out there, the Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything for Retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, balls of Funko Pops. Kids get discounts when they get A's in the report cards, so bring those uh, end-of-the-year report cards into the Game In. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at the Game In. That's with two ends. You got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot him a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two ends, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. And if we want progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punch's homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress. Look, we're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, there we have it. Uh, as you can probably already hear that my brain is a little fuzzy this morning, um, and that's just going to be the way it is. Uh, that's why I got my extra little mug of coffee here, and we're good to go. Uh, well, I hope everything's going well on your end of things. I hope that uh, this uh, – I'm quite pleased that we're going to get another day of rain. I don't know about all of you, but um, – uh, it, we had, we had a uh, rain for the first time in a long time, um, earlier in the week. And today we're forecast to get another day of rain, uh, or at least some rain, which I, excuse me, which I'm quite thrilled about. Um, something happens, you know, it's like, it's not just the ground and stuff. Everything gets dry around that, but something like, I don't know, feels like, you know, built into my, you know, DNA or whatever that just kind of starts to feel weird when it doesn't rain for a long time. So it is what it is. So big news this week was that um, Donald Trump appeared in court. Um, and, you know, like I get it. It's a big deal. Um, but whether or not this is going to be able to go to trial before the election um, in 2024 is a big question mark. Um, there is a lot of things I was listening to some um, some podcasts and reading some articles, uh, just kind of like, not like articles about the case per se, but just talking about, 
you know, you have a case of this magnitude. Um, what, what's, you know, what's that, what's the process? You know, what's the quote unquote normal process, but then what's this, you know, kind of projections of what we're going to face here in this kind of trial, right? And that's even before you, you start talking about this, the, the trial being with Donald Trump, who's going to do everything that's, you know, he can do to not actually face any jail time. So, um, but with all, for example, top secret or um, confidential clearances that are going to have to be um, done through the FBI, um, appeals about whether or not the, um, the documents that Trump um, stole from the U.S. government was um, uh, whether they uh, need to be part of the public record, right, which means they would have to be declassified, which means those documents we need to go through. I mean, things like that. There's a lot of things that have to happen for um, the trial to actually start. I mean, we already know that, you know, Trump is, you know, making history again by being the first U.S. president ever, ever uh, appearing in court to be uh, formally charged with criminal conduct while in office um, or out of, I guess, it's both in office and out of office. It's, you know, pretty remarkable. Um, and there's more trials coming up. So um, that is, you know, what I mean, that's pretty much what Donald Trump's campaign is going to be about, right? Um, it's going to be about grievance. It's going to be about the deep state. It's going to be about, um, you know, the witch hunt, all that kind of stuff. So at least everybody knows what's going on now. You know, the, the big challenge for anybody running against Trump is going to be how to actually uh, uh, get any media coverage, Right. I mean, Trump is going to dominate the media coverage because of these trials um, and, and his presidential campaign, for that matter. So we can just expect lots of craziness coming out of that campaign. And it is going to be what it is. And it's going to be a long slug. That's for sure. Um, crazy. Um, one thing I did not mention um, at the top of the show, um, I, I did want to touch upon this. Like, I, I'll be honest with you. So the way the way that the show is going to run today is that. Um, normally what I do, right, is I, I'll go through and throughout the week I'll kind of tag um, particular articles, right, that I want to go through and then um, spend some time like, you know, the, the, the evening before and then, and then the morning before the show kind of organizing things out and so on. Just did not have time to do that part of it now. So I just got my list of tagged uh, shows here. So I'm going to jump around a little bit today. Um, but the what was this is one thing that I just found was like pretty remarkable. And I came across this in the, the New Republic. Um, Republicans, um, this is the headline for it, Republicans declare banning universal school meals as a 2024 priority. I mean, this is just unbelievable. So I'm going to read just this quick piece here. Um, so states across the country are moving to provide universal free school lunch meals to all our children. Meanwhile, Republicans are trying to stop them from doing just that. The Republican Study Committee, of which three-quarters of the House Republicans are members, on Wednesday re released its desired 2024 budget, in which the party um, boldly declares its priority to eliminate the Community Eligibility Provision, or CEP, from the school lunch program. Why? Because, quote, the CEP allows certain schools to provide free school lunches regardless of the individual eligibility of each student. The horror, they say. Of note is that the CEP is not even something every school participates in. It is a meal service program reserved for qualifying schools in districts in low-income areas. 
The program enables schools that predominantly serve children from low-income backgrounds to offer all students free breakfast and lunch instead of means testing them and having to manage collecting applications on an individual basis. As with many universal-oriented programs, it is more practically efficient and, as a bonus, lifts all boats. This is what Republicans are looking to eliminate. It's the kind of provision that many will want every school to participate in it. Why not guarantee all our children are well-fed and they learn and think about our world and their place in it, after all? 100%. Um, you know, we've had Nick on the show, Nick Morsuzel, on the show before, um, <clears throat> talking about the uh, um, attempts to get you know f- the free extended universal free lunch programs extended in uh, parts of Bucks County. Um, which is, uh, you know, fantastic. I want to have him back on the show. He's, you know, he lets me know. He always keeps me up to date on what's happening. Um, but uh, I, this just is like, you know, in my mind, it's common sense. And, you know, w- one of the dynamics that's, that's, um, that's amazing, you know, there's that, uh, um, you know, the, the only way of really explaining this move from the that Republican study committee, right, and the Republican Party, right, and frankly, um, a good chunk of the, uh, you know, the leadership of the olding and aging leadership of the Democratic Party. Um, the only way to really explain moves like this is, you know, is, is punishment and um, belittlement and cruelty. You know, there's that book, right? The cruelty is the point. And what do I mean by that? It's like, well, you know, this, the whole idea about means testing, right? I, I, you know, I, and I, I guess, I guess I just, I, I remember this, you know, I've told this story, it's probably been a long time since I've talked about this. I mean, not for any, you know, problematic reason, just because I just, you know, it hasn't come up in any way. But when I see things like this, it always reminds me, it's like, you know, I grew up, um, you know, for a, a good chunk of my childhood, you know, my my mom, my sister, and I. Uh, it's after my my parents got divorced. Like, but they, uh, you know, we we had food stamps and we had to kind of register for some of these programs and things like this. And what I always, and I can't I can't give you a particular say moment or memory where I remember this happening, right? Um, like I remember my mom filling out paperwork or going, but I do remember having to go and stand like go to these different offices while they questioned my mom. I do remember process of having to display the food stamps right and publicly and other people kind of looking back and like you know to shame us like how can't believe you're blah 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 having food stamps and blah blah blah. you know this kind of stuff but I've always thought like it it just seems and and I have to say is like you know there was a time during my punk rock period of time when I was kind of much more committed or much more you know interested in kind of like 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 anarchism and anarcho-syndicalism and things like this is that, you know, that kind of anti-government punk rock stuff. I mean, and where it came from was this kind of thing, right? Was the, this kind of means testing where the government is basically being utilized, right, as a way to make things more difficult for poor folks, more difficult for people who are already hurting, right? And, and I'm not just talking about the kind of police brutality that we see exercised on, you know, black and brown communities primarily. Right. I mean, they're, they're, that's like kind of overt state violence. Right. I mean, what I'm talking about are, is the more mundane, daily, brutal ways of doing this. Like, I, I remember like being a kid and and um, 
just wondering, you know, like as kids do, not in, like in generally wondering, like, you know, like I had, a, there was a, um, there were some housing projects that were, that were directly across the street from the, um, our middle school, right? And which is great location for them, right? I mean, the, the idea is that, you know, you're close to schools, you're close to this grocery store, it's right down there. So it was a, it was a really good location for it. Um, and I remember that, you know, some kids I went to school with and things like this. And I just remember the, the, the number of them who um, live only with their mom, right? Um, and their father or either their mom and their dad were not married or, so, you know, or their you know, father wasn't there, whatever it might be. And it was only later, and, and I just didn't, you know, I was like, oh, God, that was really sad, right? And I always, you know, the, the initial reading I had was just, oh, you know, that's what happened, you know, when you're poor, it ha- caused a lot of problems, right? You cause a lot of problems, a lot of stress, and, you know, so that, you know, it's harder for families to stick together or, you know, whatever's going to be, whatever's going to be the case, right? But what, what blew my mind later on, like, and like when I was in high school, when I started to kind of like, you know, read more about it, study more about how this stuff worked and realizing that, you know, there were like governmental barriers, right. That would basically punish, right. A family, right. Um, if, so for example, that you could not have, um, if, if a woman was receiving, um, say food stamps for their kids or any kind of welfare, right. Um, to help support them. Um, they could not receive, um, that money. They would be become ineligible for them if, um, a man was living with them and they were not married, even if that man was the father of the kid. Right. So it basically said you had to, you have to be married. Right. So one, there's already this kind of, um, assumptions being made about what is kind of upstanding, what is what gives you qualifying to get the benefit of citizenship and what's not, right? But then it also creates a situation, like a disincentive, right, um, to keep families together. You know, of course, you know, this is something that, you know, I'm not telling you anything earth-shattering now. I mean, now this is pretty well understood that this has been systemically one of the um, the ways that has continued to cause problems, right, as structural racism, right, because once again, you say the, the, these primarily affected um, or the higher percentage of families of color, right, uh, black and brown families um, who were kind of uh, affected by this, right, it was a legacy of structural racism and in some cases overt racism, right, built into policy, right, so it was going on. But even at the, even at the kind of more general level is that you know, anyone who's ever been poor, right, and has had to kind of, um, you know, deal with government agencies just to kind of, you know, get, get some help, right? I mean, I remember, you know, my family too as well. My sister was um, <clears throat> uh, uh, mentally disabled, right? Um, and so having to deal with, uh, you know, getting her help and all this stuff. It, 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 the amount of time that it takes just in terms of paperwork and the amount of surveillance that you have to go through from, say, government agents, right, who are checking in on you, making sure that you are, you know, like not misusing your kind of funds and all this kind of stuff. It's just it's just horrific, right? It creates such a deep sense of the government is not there for me. The government is part of the problem, Right. And that, that bleeds into our politics, right? You know, people always ask, well, you know, why poor people vote against their interests? Or how come more poor people don't vote? It's like, well, if your primary experience with the government, right, is for them surveilling you, for them making you feel uh, horrific, asking about your sexual practices just to see if you qualify for, 
um, you know, some, you know, medical aid, you know, I mean, things like this. I mean, it's just, if that's your primary experience, right. And then you have the layer of kind of structural violence, right. The kind of through kind of, um, you know, the enforcement wings of the state, um, all that stuff creates an antagonism, right. So that you're already kind of, you know, creating a government that is, doesn't feel like it's part of yours. And, but on top of that, right, this is kind of like, you know, you know, started realizing later on my years, what was the top of that? What is, if you just think about the idea of means testing something that to make sure that you, not only do you have to, you have to uh, meet certain kind of, you know, whatever moral characteristics in some of these programs, but you have to have a certain kind of financial level, right? So that, and what that number is separates who qualifies and who doesn't, right? So that, you know, you always heard stories of somebody kind of actually gets a job, it bumps, uh, bumps them up just beyond the qualified thing, and then they lose all their benefits. And now they're thrown back basically in poverty because, you know, we don't have so many universal programs to support families and support individuals in this country, right? Especially at the lower end of the spectrum, right? Even, you know, below middle, really. Um. But if you think about the amount of money and resources that goes into surveilling those means, those mean test programs, right? I mean, what Republicans do and what they're doing in this universal lunch program thing, what they do is they say, and, and again, again, big sections of kind of like, you know, bread in the 90s Democrats um, are also into this means testing stuff, right? And it's all framed around this, you know, this language of deserving, who deserves to get this, right? And these people really don't need it, so we're only going to give it to deserving people, right? And you're dividing these kind of these barriers and stuff. But in order to draw, once you draw a line between those who are deserve it and those who do not, right? Those who qualify and those who do not, you have to have a way of policing that line, right? Which means basically creating another bureaucracy, like whether it's through kind of police or whether it's through... Um, <clears throat> whether it's through police or whether it's through um, different agencies or whether it's kind of through reporting requirements or whether it's kind of requiring you to prove like every three months that you still qualify for the program. And then people have to go through that paperwork. So the, a bureaucracy gets created around means testing, right? Because we're more concerned apparently as a culture to talk about who's deserving, who's not deserving, right? Um, and to create resentments between those rather than just kind of give these universal programs. And the hidden cost of that is that in order to have means testing, like even if your argument is because, you know, look, you know, we don't have the money and, you know, we have to, we can only kind of do so much and you can't do it for everybody because uh, we don't have any money, right? Because we're broke, which we all know is a big lie and there's big problems with that and there's reasons for that, blah, blah, blah. But that gets kind of turned out because you want to be fiscally responsible, right? And all they're talking about is the cost of the actual aid itself, but not the kind of entire apparatus in which it's, uh, which it's functioning, right? So those things end up costing more in the long run. The school lunch program is a perfect example, right? Is that COVID gave us a window into, or the, the programs around COVID, COVID gave us a window into a different kind of possibility a different way of looking at like how we treat people. And again, this was not the dominant way things happened, but there were these little glimpses. And one of them was free lunches, right? It's like, I mean, our school district did it here in Penridge, right? You got federal funds that came in 
right? And then every, nobody needed to be asked. You didn't need to prove that you qualified or you were deserving of a free lunch, right? You weren't shamed for it because basically everybody can get it, right? And so the money came in to buy lunch for anybody who wanted it. And there were kids, you know, there were, there were a couple days, right? You know, I, I make my kids lunch every day, right? You know, that's kind of what I do. But there were a couple days where, you know, like, like my daughter or my son just like, you know, I, I think I'm just going to just get lunch at school today. Okay. Right. Or, you know, like they forgot their lunch at home, but then there was always something there. Right. And it wasn't like, you know, because everybody could do it. Right. Suddenly you, you take away all the shame away. Right. You take away all the kind of like the questions about deserving and undeserving or, or kind of like, you know, oh, my God, they must be poor. Now you had everybody just there and you just basically can get a lunch because you're hungry, <laughs> right? And because it's lunchtime and because that's what you do at school, right? And so because that happened, there's no more surveillance mechanism, right? All the kind of the bureaucracy, all the filling out of forms and, and stamping forms and checking forms and, and, and reapplying and applying, all that kind of thing is just gone. And instead, you've got this pretty efficient program and was shown to be extraordinarily successful, right? And so this is the, the reason why I believe that the Republican Party is deciding that this is going to be a priority in their election. Because, I mean, really, who, who would, would imagine? I guess we, I mean, nothing's like unimaginable these days. But I mean, I, I would never imagine that like school lunches, making sure kids are fed, was going to be a priority in the Republican Party's campaigns for 2024. But here we are, right? And it goes to so much we've talked about over the years on this program, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, why universal programs are good, why universal, like, you know, universal health care is so good, right? It's like not only... Like, does it end up being more cost effective because you're not paying all these middle people, right? These middle managers, you're not paying, you're not have companies that are kind of are, 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 are looking for ways that they can have like higher profits, right? That they can push down costs so their CEOs can make more money, right? Once you have a universal option, right? Once you have the kind of, not even universal, once you have universal health care, right? The profit incentive is gone. Right. All these other kind of like, you know, the advertising campaigns by that are run by drug companies are gone. Right. And whether or not, you know, that, that whole moment of like, you know, you going into the uh, going in to see the doctor and like, you know, do you have health insurance? That's gone. The, the, the intense amount of paperwork that goes into just basically documenting that you actually had like, you know, you actually had a visit. So therefore you should be able to like the insurance should, should pay for you. Right. Should pay for that. Right. The number, the, 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 the increase in the, the increase in the time that it takes just to deal with these, you know, requirements to support non-universal healthcare. It's right across the board. Emily makes a great, uh, great point. Um, is they want to protect kids from inclusive books, but not hunger. It's like, where's the sense in that? Exactly, Emily. Exactly. I mean, this is, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. 
so, you know, there we have it. I mean, we have this, you know, this, it just, I, I don't know. I just, that's, it's the kind of thing that just really stuck in my craw when I saw it. And I, you know, I, I literally, I saw the headline and I thought it was going to be one of these, you know, headlines that's meant to get you upset. And then you read into it and it's actually not quite what it is. It has to do with some other program, but they want to, you know, nope, this, no, that's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> they want to take away free lunch. It's freaking, it, it's crazy. It's crazy. So um, there you have it. Um, you know, a couple other things I'll mention, and then I want to talk a little about the uh, um, Vermilion and Penridge situation. Um, I do think it was pretty interesting that, oh, I know, there's another thing I didn't mention at the top two as well. I mentioned about China basically saying, reporting that, that they have capacity of um, renewable energy sources now are kind of in the majority of... Um, of their capacity, their energy capacity. And again, I was reading a little bit more about the, you know, specifically what this means. Um, again, this is reported by state media, so you've got to put that with a grain of salt. Um, but um, the the energy that you're currently consuming, right, is not the same as your overall capacity. Like, so in other words, so the way that they measure this is, uh, as I was reading about this was, um, so if you're taking, like, you build a huge solar array, Right. Your capacity is that solar array um, operating on a sunny day, like in the middle of the day, and it's kind of getting the most possible energy out of it. So that's your kind of your overall capacity. Um, so just like a fossil fuel plant, right, your overall capacity is you're burning as much as you possibly can to get the most energy out of that. So that's your, your kind of capacity. And so the capacity, right, um, with wind and solar and kind of alternative source and, and nuclear, I guess they included in this, uh, is just tipped in the majority um, in China. Um, however, if you look at the amount of fuel they're burning, coal is still their primary fuel source. But it nonetheless shows that, like, dedicated efforts in order to kind of build out capacity and infrastructure um, can be done, right? I mean, in a country as, as big as China, um, if they can do it... So, we could do it, right? Um, if they can do it, we can do it in this country, right? Um, if we had our priorities right. Um, now, having said that, um, the upcoming COP28, um, which is, you know, um, the climate change summit at the UN's climate change global climate summit, um, there's some emerging controversy once again uh, around the role that energy companies are playing in the, uh, I shouldn't say energy companies, say oil companies, um, petroleum companies, fossil fuel companies are playing here. Um, so uh, let me, uh, I'll just read a little bit. This is this article from the New York Times. So an unavoidable tension surrounds this year's United Nations climate talks in November. They will take place in the oil-rich United Arab Emirates and, and the most important role that the talks is held I'm sorry, and the most important role at the talks is held by the man who heads the national oil company. The executive, Sultan al-Jabar, Jabir, Jabir, sorry, um, and other representatives of the Emirates, Emiratis, have argued they have a, quote, game-changing plan to fight climate change by welcoming oil and gas companies from around the world to participate more fully in the talks. In other words, invite the producers of the fuels that cause the majority of the global warming as key players in developing a plan to sow slow warming. In an interview, Majid al-Sawaidi, um, an Emirati a diplomat, who will also play a major role in the climate talks, known by the acronym COP28, 
said, quote, we need to engage the people who have the technical know-how, the skills and the technology, and by the way, the people who will provide jobs in a conversation about how they transform. To activists who have attended these conferences for years, that notion sounded far-fetched. Quote, it's just like how tobacco lobbyists need to be kept out of conversations about cancer prevention, unquote, said Catherine Ebro, who heads the Destination Zero, a network of nonprofits working on climate issues. The conference will take place amid a backdrop of resurgent fossil fuel investment after a brief pandemic area dip. Energy use derived from fossil fuels accounts for more than two-thirds of global emissions. Right. So that's something that we're going to see kind of, I think, come to a head. And if you remember, um, you had some activists who were um, who re- did not attend this past uh, um, uh, climate summit precisely because of the role that oil and gas already was playing, right? The lobbyists or the companies themselves were playing at the talks. Um, it's going to be important, like, you know, because time is like, quickly, quickly running out. I purposely did not kind of put on a bunch of articles this week on uh, some of the climate catastrophes, just because I wasn't gonna be able to give them the space that they want. But, you know, there's evidence around us every single day. So what are we gonna talk about for the rest of the time? All right, like I said, we'll keep things a little bit a little bit tight today. Um, and I know I'm jumping around, as I said, but I do want to talk about what happened at the um, uh, the Penridge school board meeting this past week. So um, I thought it was pretty impressive um, to see, like, again, so many, say, parents and community members that are coming out at the board um, to hold that board accountable. Um, because what had happened last week, as we talked about on the show last um, last Friday, is that, you know, there was this scheduling and rescheduling of this meeting at which Jordan Adams, who's the head of Vermilion Education, Jordan Adams was supposed to come to, um, um, was supposed to come to, or appear, I guess, um, at the Penridge School Board to explain what they um, would add to the curriculum or what their role would be in the curriculum at the uh, that they've just been hired on, right? Because there's been so much criticism um, of what's going on. Um, what interesting the things that that came up. So that meeting was on the twelfth, right? Now that morning, right? Uh, you know, huge credits go to Jenny Stevens and the folks at the Bucks County Beacon um, for their work on this. So um, that morning. Uh, Jenny Stevens and published this in the Bucks County Beacon. It's an article called Right to Know Documents Highlight Penridge Superintendents Pushback Against Vermilion Education. Um, where did I do with that? Like I have a print out of this too as well. Um, but of course, I'm probably stuffed. Oh, here they are. Um, so, um, yeah, and so I'll read you a little bit of Jenny's piece and then talk a little bit about it. So an extensive right to know the Penridge School District has revealed an April 25th email exchange between Superintendent David Bolton, Dr. David Bolton, and School Board Director Jordan Blomgren that sheds light on dissension between the administration and the Republican Majority School Board on curriculum matters. The document reveals Bolton to have asked a variety of questions about the controversial Vermillion contract one day prior to the April 26th board meeting. And the superintendent's inquiries and comments included the timing of the added Vermilion contract, a contract that only Blomgren had reviewed um, to the board meeting agenda um, that she had added to the board meeting's agenda 24 hours prior to the meeting. 
at least some board members had opportunity to review the documents and others, including school board administrators, teachers, and the public had not. Right? Bolton also emphasized that the contract did not contain certain description of the scope of work being contracted and so on. Right? Megan Bannis Clemens also wrote that prior to consultant, you know, well, we've heard a bunch of this stuff already, but um, I wanted to give you a sense of what this gone. So Dr. Bolton, right, this is from the right to no request. So uh, Dr. Bolton uh, writes to Jordan Blomgren. She says, I am confirming receipt of your text from last night. That's his 424 to inform me that we'd be adding a contract for a curriculum consultant, Jordan Adams, I was told by others, to come in and help with the curriculum overlay and development. You intend to add the, this contract to the board meeting tomorrow for consideration and vote under finance committee. It will be, has been, question mark, sent to Mike Miller for his review. At this point, no one in the district has seen the contract to review the scope of services and cost. I realize that you have spoken with several board members and that the board president ultimately establishes the agenda with superintendent input. Since we are outside of our normal process, I wanted to express some concerns on this matter. So he's already recognizing that you're violating the process that you're, that we're supposed to go through uh, before these members come up. But number one, the timing to suggest a new contract less than 48 hours before the meeting is not best practice. We strive to provide time um, and for both board and public review of items being considered. My understanding is that no one except you, question mark, has seen this contract yet. The perception will be that this item is being rushed through. Two, the cost. No one was able to state the expected cost of the service at this point. These funds are obviously not captured in the 22-23 budget. Three, scope of the work. In your parentheses, Jordan and Megan's conversation with Tony and Kathy, it was indicated that this was to provide support for our process and to take some of the time and effort away from Kathy, Tony, and our staff. It was also indicated that it was not to undo anything that we all have already accomplished, but may include Mr. Adams writing some curriculum lessons or units. Then he's got a series A, B, and C. A, both Kathy and Tony do not believe that this resource is needed and that in contrast, it may hurt the process. B, we are on track to present the ninth grade social studies course and at least one unit, perhaps two or three of each grade of the elementary studies curriculum in June as asked. Those documents are the finish line and our staff has worked hard on these. So in other words, they're basically done doing the curriculum revisions of the social studies that have already been asked. And now they're saying they want to throw it all out. Since it's indicated that the consultant does not, will not undo this work, are you sure, we are not sure what the purpose he serves. C, I could not find a website to indicate the typical services that Mr. Adams through Vimeo Education Consulting offers. Number four, the process. I'm concerned with that one board member negotiated a contract with curriculum consultant without conversation with anyone responsible for the development of curriculum. I do not believe that this is the board's responsibility and should have been trusted to Tony, Kathy, and or me if you felt the service would be helpful. You both, Jordan and Megan, have been fully involved in the curriculum process and have provided many ideas to Kathy and Tony for their work. This type of added support should be a conversation and not a mandate contrary to Kathy and Tony's work and our staffs. Five, trust. We if we truly believe, as you have said, that teachers write our curriculum, then how will this be perceived by our staff? Do, do Kathy and Tony lead our curriculum work? Regardless of the intentions, one likely outcome will be additional feelings that the board does not trust us to do the job the right way. You have indicated multiple times that Hillsdale resources or the full curriculum are desired. 
This is likely to be seen by some as a move to make a real a, a real to make that a reality, regardless of what the staff thinks is best. I will continue to encourage that uh, that this be a conversation about the need of a consultant, and that our curriculum staff make the decision about what is needed. Signed, David. So I want to read it in its full because I want to say this is kind of what it lays out. Now let's let's I want to be clear about something, right? Because in our kind of on off pro con either or discourse that everyone is pretty much used to. Um, this could be read as like, you know, David Bolton, like champion of the people, right? But let's be clear what Bolton is, is primarily talking about, just like Joan Cullen has talked about in the past is, is one of process, right? It, it's, it's the fact that it's clear Jordan Blomgren and Megan Bennis Clemens have already been kind of welcomed in and are kind of having impact and kind of making suggestions being part of these curriculum meetings already tells us that, you know, that big changes have already under been undergone, right? We know that. We also know that Bolton has not actually spoken out, right, uh, very much against kind of Vermillion around this. And even in here, right, the question is not whether or not we agree with uh, Christian nationalism being taught in our schools. It's not about that. It's not about a resistance to Vermillion per se. It's just a technical question about this, whether or not this is needed or not. Right, that it might be just kind of like you're paying somebody to do work that's already been done, right? More of a practical, technical issue rather than one um, about the content of what they're being proposed, what they're proposing. And again, we could there's I, I'm there's a thousand different reasons that we can imagine about what's going on there, um, but we got to make sure that we're not just turning Bolton into a hero here when he has been, you know directly involved with um, the changes of this curriculum and has not really spoken out publicly against it, right? Um, and, you know, what I keep on hearing from teachers and people who talk to teachers now is that they're feeling consistently, uh, continuously under threat, right? There were something, over 30 teachers uh, just retired from the, the district. Um, and by retired, I don't mean just that they're old and they left. A lot of them have taken other jobs. They've left the district, I should say. Um, I found out that I think it was uh, somebody was telling me yesterday that I want six. Was it six or nine? Um, I'll say at least six. I'll go out here on the conservative end of the science teachers from the high school are leaving. For example, I also found out, right, or I was told, right, um, that the board members are also now sitting in on interviews with with potential teachers. Right. So that's the degree of control. Right. This was not what used to happen. This is the degree of control they're trying to do. So not only are they changing the curriculum, right, they're trying to kind of nip in the bud any kind of teachers that might um, pose a challenge to their Christian nationalist agenda. So that was Bolton's uh, letter. And then in the same set of documents from Jenny Stevens, um, we get Megan Bannis Clemens writes in response to his email. <clears throat> she writes, David, since you do not believe that there is a benefit to curriculum consultants, I expect to see a motion on the agenda tomorrow to terminate any open contracts with the other consultants we are paying a ridiculous rate in an apparently open blank check. They are also the ones who brought us the controversial curriculum that led to public controversy and scrutiny. Right. What she's talking about here is a process where they're having consultants that were there to work on kind of, say, diversity issues, kind of change the curriculum to update that kind of best practices and so on. Right. And by the way, um, those consultants went through the normal process. 
right, of hiring and concealing, working with the curriculum directors, right? And they did have spelled out costs and contracts, right? And had clearly documented um, experience and credentials, but we'll put that aside for now. So now, uh, Megan writes, Jordan was bringing, was bringing in help and support. Jordan, thank you. Thanks for your work on this. David, I'll remind you that you continue to add contracts to the agenda at the last minute, and in some cases without any board approval. This email is completely inappropriate and in bad faith. It actually makes me wonder what you're worried about. It gives me the impression that you have something to hide. It's interesting that all of a sudden this curriculum is just about done when it's not what has been shared with us in any way. This is just lies. And notice that she starts resorting to conspiracy theories. Like you've got something to hide. This guy has basically been in lockstep with helping this board, right, manage itself. And now because he raises questions about the process and tries to raise, I think, pretty legitimate um, consequences of doing it in the way that they did, right? In other words, this is how it's going to be perceived. He doesn't say this is what is going on. He said this is how it's going to be perceived by people, right? That's a communications question. That is a PR issue. It is not about the content of that curriculum, right? And instead, I said, oh, my God, you know, Bolton is like, he's actually a double agent. And now he's like, you know, whatever. This is what, this is, this is the board that we're talking about. And it was, it was not long. So this was from April 25th. So this, if you recall, we talked, I think we talked about this last week where uh, Dr. Bolton is now has, uh, he's taken a, a temporary leave of absence, which he said for health concerns. And we don't know anything beyond that. But then shortly after that, there's uh, been, I'll say they're rumors, <clears throat> because um, even though people have said that they've heard this from reputable sources, I can't verify that, right? Um, but um, there's been rumors that uh, the board is moving to um, either fire Bolton or force him out, Right. Um, this was brought up a couple times at this past weekend's, uh, this past week's meeting, um, where I said, well, now that you've gotten rid of him now, again, we shall see if that's, if that pans out to be true. Um, I don't know if it is or not. Um, but it tells you that, you know, this pressures are there. So at the school board meeting too, as well is, um, there was, you know, please go check out, we've got, you know, a special playlist on our YouTube page now that's just called PA school board wars. And uh, I've been I've been busting them out. I've been kind of sharing kind of clips from those school board from the school board meetings where you can hear some of these parents' comments, and they're just pretty kind of phenomenal. Um, it's the kind of organizing that we kind of need to continue to see. So um, kudos there. So at that same meeting, let me go back over here. Um, I'll read you uh, a bit from uh, Jenny Stevens, what she said uh, about that meeting um, the day after, right? So this is the 13th. So that the one I just read you was, uh, you know, these documents that dropped from the Right to Know Act. Um, then the meeting takes place. What was interesting too, Megan Bannis Clemens was not there at the beginning, but then she kind of like appeared out of, the, out of like backstage. She walked on backstage and snuck into a place. It was like weird because you watch the meetings, I did. Um, you, it, unless you were watching carefully, you didn't see her sneak in. And then suddenly she starts talking like, where'd she come from? Right. Um, the red wizard of Thay, um, negative Thay is, uh, something else. I'll tell you. But anyways, so here's uh, Jenny Stevens response, uh, um, 
or kind of write up a report on the meeting. So public comment at Monday's Penridge School Board Committee was a robust was robust and unimpeded, unlike the meeting in May where comments were stifled and Pennsylvania's Sunshine Act was repeatedly trampled. Parents, recent graduates, and local residents exercised their opportunity to speak out about circumstances surrounding the board's conduct at recent meetings, the Vermilion Hillsdale contract and the weeding of books from several schools in the district. Quote, I know I, and I suspect many other people in the audience, have really had enough of in, uh, board infighting, disrespectful behavior to staff and the public. Just overall unprofessional behavior, said Jane Kramer during public comment. Tonight's gone well, so thank you for that. But the last two meetings, those 45-minute delays, just so disrespectful. So I invite the board president and vice president to take the rest of my three minutes to apologize to the community. Now, of course, Dave Rice and Megan Bennis clemens the president and vice president, did not apologize, right? Uh, surprise, surprise. Later on in the meeting, um, and this is one of the clips I posted up on our, our YouTube page. Um, again, it's under PA School Board Wars. Um, was Megan Bennis Clemens basically providing a quote unquote explanation. Like she went on for over five minutes talking about everything that happened. And really it was just about her experience, right? This was like her experience about um, what she was trying to do and why she was trying to do. And then these people were at this place and these people were in the parking lot and they couldn't get Wi-Fi and all this kind of stuff. And Joan Cullen, um, again, let's not kind of turn her into some kind of hero um, because she has been the person who's enabled all this behavior ultimately um, by basically bringing in this you know, extremist politics, right, um, for the beginning. So, but she knows process, right? Um, and she basically said, that is not what happened, right? Megan, you're lying, <laughs> right? And we should apologize because it took, you know, it was a lot, of, a lot of people, it was inconvenient for a lot of people and they had no idea what was going on, right? Megan Bannis comments basically, no, we were trying to make, trying to make it so exciting. And she does this all the time, right? Her language is that like, we were just trying to make it work. We were just trying to put it together at the last meeting. We were just trying to kind of do everything that we could to make sure that we had the meeting. And all Joan Cullen was saying was like, look, it is law, right, in the state of Pennsylvania, it is a law that if you cancel a meeting, right, you cannot schedule another meeting for another 24 hours. In other words, there needs to be, part of the law is that you need to provide at least a 24-hour notice of changes in the meeting, which, by the way, is what they did very, very brief moment, right? You said, look, we're not going to come here because of the smoke, right? Because all the wildfire stuff that, that was kind of flooding the area, we're going to postpone the meeting until the following day, right? And they had sent that out, I believe. Yes, yes, they had sent that out with enough of a 24-hour notice. So that would have been inconvenient for everyone. That would have been, but at least it would have met the letter of the law, right? Then in the most bizarre turn of a like less than an hour or an hour, maybe just over an hour before the meeting actually was going to take place on Wednesday. She's like, no, no, we're going to go ahead. We're going to go ahead with the meeting on zoom. And what Joan Cullen was saying, right. And some other members of the board too, is like that. You can't do that. That's breaking the law. Right. It's not whether or not like the meeting is a good thing. Right. It's like that. You just can't do that. And what Megan Bennis Clemens said that Joan was just trying to grandstand and she was just trying to basically give her, uh, um, stand in the way and not help out. And she's like, and Joan Cullen said, look, I was helping out to try to keep you from breaking the law, but you just wouldn't hear it. 
and instead you're going to attack me. So that stuff was that kind of thing was was going on. It was, it was just pretty remarkable. And I, I just don't, you know, I just don't believe I live in this district is really what it comes down to. But whatever. Um, more was said about the uh, Vermilion contract. There is a petition that is out um, that is out there right now that um, over what is it? How many people have signed it? Twelve hundred parents. Uh, I, I, it's over a thousand. I believe it's over twelve hundred people have signed this petition. Right, uh, a petition against this Vermilion contract. So it says Laura Foster, parent of the um, parent of children in the district, talked about the Vermilion contract. Quote, the vast majority of our community opposed the Vermilion contract being um, contracted with in Penridge. Our community has said time and time again that we do not want our children to be guinea pigs in the Vermilion, uh, Vermilion experiment. Oh, 1,100, here we go. Foster then went on to read some of the comments and petitions signed by more than 1,100 area residents. This contract has not been properly vetted. It is, appears to be uh, without service parameters or cost limits. Another comment was the consultant has no track record. Another comment this is not how my tax dollars should be spent. Another one being, I'm signing this because our school board's misusing its power, I'm misusing my tax dollars. I do not agree with my money being spent on this, right? And then last one that she mentions, quote, I believe that, I believe the school board needs to stay out of the classroom, leave teaching to teachers. Your job is to find a way to cut costs, which this is something I disagree with, um, um, to not inflict your political agenda onto teachers, students, parents, and our taxpayers. Um, just so this is the other thing that keeps on coming up. You know, people keep saying, you what well, you said, you're going to be fiscal responsible. You said you're going to be fiscal responsible. Um, but this kind of comment, right, this is something that always concerns me, too, as well. I said, like, your job is to find ways to cut costs. And I would just fundamentally disagree with that. That is not their job. Their job is not look way to find cut costs. Their job is to help facilitate the most effective and best education that can be delivered given existing resources. All right. That is not cutting costs, right? That's a very different kind of thing. If your only job is cutting costs, then education will ultimately suffer. You're going to cut teachers. Because look, what's the number one? What's the number one cost in any education? Any education. We're talking about K through twelve. We're talking about higher education. It's labor. It's people. Right? Because teachers need to teach. Right? It is a interpersonal kind of profession, right? So what are you going to cut? You're going to cut books? Okay. No, you want to basically, you don't, if we start from, you're there to cut costs. I know this is, I'm going off in a different direction, but this is, if you're there, if you think you're the job of the school board is to find ways to cut costs, you're basically, you're, you're basically hamstringing your own schools. And you're basically telling your kids, right, that we're going to put you on the chopping block, right? Because what, what this ultimately leads to, and this is like the neoliberal process, right, where you're just basically anything that is public, you're going to try to turn into some private thing, or you're going to ask people to do more. Why do you think teachers are, 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 are burned out? Right? And in Penridge, when you have the schools pay like a third lower than all the other surrounding school districts, right, shouldn't be surprising that teachers are leaving the district to go elsewhere, especially in this context. So no, their job is not to cut costs. Their job is to provide, help provide and help facilitate the most effective, right, education given the existing resources, right? And when necessary, raising additional resources, 
right, to meet the demands of the school district. So, for example, right now, there's building booms happening in the, in the uh, Penridge School District, right? The amount of people that are moving to the area, right, the amount of new houses that are being constructed, the amount of renovations of old buildings turning into uh, apartments and condos and things like this, that's expanding, right, in Percocet and the surrounding areas. Let, that is eventually going to mean there are going to be more people living here and therefore more children living here. And then our schools are going to require more space. And the existing budget may not account for that. And if all I'm focused on is cutting costs, I may not be planning for what you need to do. There was a great discussion, actually. And this is, I'll, give, I'll give this to Megan Bannis Clemens, right? I mean, she brought this issue up again. Well, why are we? Why don't we focus on you know putting AC in all of our schools, air conditioning in all of our schools? And Joan Cullen, in a remarkable moment of agreement with uh, Megan Bannis Clemens, said, "Yes, I agree. You know, this is probably a good idea, but we need to pl plan and budget for that." And then they were going back for well, how do you prioritize this stuff, right? And again, this is where, you know, you, get, you hit one group against another. And, and Joan Cullen basically said, look, we've talked about this for years. South Middle School has been consistently um, under, uh, has, has received fewer resources than some of, the, some of the other schools. It is an older building and it needs renovation, but it keeps on getting bumped down the road, right, in favor of this school, that school. That doesn't mean that these other schools don't don't need it, like elementary schools don't need it, but it just means like, hey, let's, we gotta, we gotta talk about the whole picture, not just you, you, you pick your, your favorites, right? And so that's, that's a, and that's a reasonable, good discussion. Well, where, how do we actually make this happen? And given the fact that, you know, things are only gonna get warmer, right, with climate, that we're gonna see more kind of extreme uh, kind of uh, weather events, that that's a great infrastructure question. So the question is, where does that money come from? And if the only tool you have at your disposal is cutting costs, Right, that you mean that you're going to have to reduce teachers, right? You're going to have to reduce something. You have to pack more kids in classrooms or something like this. I, I mean, I don't know. So let's just be clear about that. And I'm sorry for the the, the kind of you know the cul-de-sac there, kind of taking you on that diversion. But I think that's a an important question. Um. So, anyways, um, this is basically how uh kind of what goes on. And I think that, you know, I want to, this last part that I'll read from what happened here is this Robin Levy of Bedminster, right? Um, she compared Vermillion's contract with a timeshare, and, and then she goes on to make a really important point. So I just want to read you her, her whole comment here. So, quote, I don't know if any of you guys have a timeshare. It's the only thing I could think of that you pay every month but have no idea how much it costs. You have no idea when you're going to get it, get hit with extra costs, and there's no end. Unless you die, and then you're done, she said. Most of you, not all of you, but most of you ran on fiscal responsibility. And this is the least fiscally responsible thing I could think of, right? So this is kind of a perfect example. Then she goes on to say, and I think this is important. I read the 1776 curriculum. This is the one from Hillsdale College. I read the 1776 curriculum, and I swear to you, if you replace the word German every time that man wrote American Child, it would look like something um, like it would look like it came from something written in 1933, and it scared the crap out of me, she added. Right. I'm so glad that she made that comment. Right. There was also a, a phenomenal comment that was made by um, um, that was made by another um, another parent where she basically talked about um, kind of the mental health issues. Right. And then um, why it's so kind of critical not to be banning a bunch of books that are going to be really important for um, for kids, especially ones who are feeling kind of marginalized or who are marginalized. Um, that was just a phenomenal moment here. Heather Young, I think, was one who made that comment. 
So anyways, um, you know, the, the struggle continues. I mean, what can I say? Um, this is kind of where we are and where we're going. So anyways, um, yeah, I also want to say, I'm sorry. I'm so out of it here today, guys. Uh, everybody, I also want to say, oh, here, I'll, I'll mention this and we'll kind of close off with this because this is a little bit fun. Um, so there's some new research that's been coming out that's basically looking at, you know, it's modeling out kind of what's going to happen with AI. And there's all sorts of new reasons to be concerned about AI. Um, I'll give you two examples of reasons to be concerned. One, Google is telling its own employees to not mess around with the Google Bard, right? That's its own chatbot, right? That tells you like a bunch there. And then secondly, um, uh, I was... Um, Alana Pierce, I don't know if anybody knows her. She's a, she's a gamer, but she's a kind of YouTuber and gamer and things like this. And um, she, she kind of came to notoriety years ago because she was basically pushing for more women in the gaming industry, right? Not just in kind of like, you know, commentary, but actually game design and all this other stuff. And there was a whole bunch of uh, internet attacks against her, right? Um, like race or sexist stuff, like horrific stuff. And she got known, she got to, at, the, at the time, because basically what she did is that she kind of got in touch with these, and most of the time were like young boys, right? You know, teenage boys making horrific comments her. And she basically got in touch with their parents and their moms in particular said, hey, just wanted to let you know that this is what your son is sending me um, every day, right? And that there was magazine covers and so on. Anyways, but she's a game designer. She's like um, this stuff. And she just did this, uh, just, just came up on my feed and I was like, wow, this is nuts. So there's this new thing, I guess it's by NVIDIA. It's a, uh, it's a AI plugin for streaming. Um, and in particular, so if you're looking at me, if you're watching me on YouTube right now, it's like, you know, my eyes are going to go all over the place, but basically it uses AI to make it appear as if you are always looking into the camera, right? You're always making eye contact with your audience, right? So she just did this, um, just a demo of it. And she's like, this is really freaking me out because she's like looking down, looking to the side, you know, kind of looking, closing her eyes. And despite all of that, the, uh, the AI was correcting for and making it appear that her eyes are looking only at the camera. Really crazy. Um, so there's all that kind of stuff going on, but on a much more kind of macro level, um, there is, um, let's see where this came from. Where this came from. Uh, so this is a group of researchers from the UK and Canada have looked into this problem of, um, what do they call it? It's called, oh God, I know it's going to kill me. But basically it's, it's a feedback loop, right? Um, that's happening with AI. So let me, I'll just read a, a, a little bit of this for you. This is just, you know, you know, whatever the best laid plans is that we put this in there. So the age of generative AI is here. Only six months after OpenAI's chat GPT burst onto the scene, as many as half the employees at some leading global companies are already using this type of technology in their workflows. And many other companies are rushing to offer new products with generative AI built in, just like the NVIDIA example. But as those following the burgeoning industry and its underlying research know, the data used to train the large language models, the LLMs, and other transformer models are underpinning products such as ChatGPT, Stable Diffusion, and MidJourney comes initially from human sources. In other words, it's pulling from books and articles and, and photographs and so on that were created without the help of the artificial intelligence. Now, as more people use AI to produce and publish content, an obvious question arises. What happens as AI-generated content proliferates around the internet 
and AI models begin to train on it instead of on primarily human-generated content. Right? A group of researchers from UK and Canada have looked into this very problem and recently published a paper on their work in the Open Access Journal on ARXIV, or ARXVID, I don't know. Uh, what they found was worrisome for current generative AI technology and its future. Quote, we find that the use of model-generated content in training causes irreversible defects in the resulting models. Specifically, looking at the probability distributions for text-to-text -text and image-to-image -image AI generative models, models, the researchers concluded that, quote, learning from data produced by other models causes model collapse. That's the word I was looking for. A degenerative process whereby, over time, models forget the true underlying data distribution. This process is inevitable, even for cases with almost ideal conditions for long-term learning. Over time, mistakes in generated data compound and ultimately force models to learn that learn from generated data to misperceive reality even further, unquote, wrote one of the paper's leading authors, um, Ilya uh, Sumalov, in an email to VentureBeat. Quote, we were surprised to observe how quickly model collapse happens. Models can rapidly forget most of the original data from which they initially learned. In other words, as an AI training model is exposed to more AI-generated data, it performs worse over time, producing more errors in the responses and content it generates, and producing a far, not, a far less non-erroneous variety in its responses. It's just crazy. So uh, will AI eat itself, I guess, is the big question. <laughs> big question. Oh God, it is a Friday for sure. Um, well, listen, everybody, I'm going to, I'm going to cut it here. Um, and sorry, one for the late start. Number two, sorry for kind of being a little bit of a meandering stream this morning. Um, but look forward. So listen, I want to give you a program note from Monday too, as well. So, um, there is not going to be a live show on Monday. Um, instead, um, do tune in. I'm going to put it out at the 7 to 7 o'clock end, just like normal. Um, uh, we have um, Mark Engler on the show. Um, so I did a pre-record with Mark um, on Tuesday, and we're talking about um, his article um, that's basically looking at the ways that social movements can prevent politicians from selling out. It's a great conversation. It's a pretty of a whirlwind one. He literally kind of helps, kind of talks through the entire piece that he puts out um, and uh, as I learned in the interview that uh, this is part of uh, uh, Mark's next book, which I was, was thrilled to hear. Um, but you may, you've heard me talk about his book before on the show called This is an Uprising, uh, How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. Um, Mark is a Philly-based writer, and he is a, one of the, um, he's on the editorial board of Dissent Magazine, um, writes about social movements and nonviolent conflict. Um, he's absolutely uh, fantastic. Had a great conversation with him. So look for that on Monday. But just so you know, it's going to be, it'll be, it'll be published out there, but it is not going to be a live show. So that may, um, so if you're not getting answers back from me, if you jump into the chat and so on like this, that's because um, it's just kind of really special for that time. Okay. Um, just wanted to let you know. All right, everybody. Um, have a great weekend. Uh, hope you enjoy some of this rain. I know I am. I just got a little bit of a warning that there's going to be some thunder coming through. So I guess it's a good time for me to get off the computer. Um, have a great weekend. Uh, keep up the fight and we will see you soon. We'll take a nap, I think. All right, everybody. Take it easy. Talk to you soon. See ya. Let me try my people come. Where are my
Supply, but we now. 